If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. Acts 12, 1 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew right there in front of you. And you'll find this on page 780 or 820 of the Pew Bible, depending on which printing of that you have. We've been going through a study on the book of Acts, um, and chapter 12 is where we arrive at this morning, and this, for better or worse, has nothing to do with power camp. So uh, it wasn't planned that way. If it, if it does seem to have something to do with power camp, that is the Lord's doing, or, uh, or just you're trying to make it that way, because it's just Acts chapter 12, The title of the message is, When Life Seems Unfair, God is Still Good. You know, we actually encounter um, stories of people feeling that way all the time. If you listen, as a matter of fact, uh, there have been a few in recent weeks for me just listening to people talk, but even just yesterday... I had a conversation with a woman I had never met before. It was a fairly passing um, conversation and, and, and short, but uh, in getting to know a little bit about her family, just inquiring a little bit about her family, she told me she had been unmarried for a long time and then got married. She was married for four years, and her husband died of cancer, actually after a two-year battle uh, with cancer. She's not an old person, presumably neither was he. But she said, in the course of that conversation, I dealt with anger, some anger issues for a while. And I asked, why would God bring somebody so good like that into my life, only to let them be taken away in such a short period of time? And she said she had voiced that question to a friend of hers who had said something uh, that was comforting and that she found satisfactory and helpful or whatever. And what that was is really neither here nor there. The point is simply to illustrate how frequently it is people feel like, because of any variety of circumstances, this just isn't fair. This seems like it ought not to be this way. That on a cosmic level somehow, life can seem unfair. Well, let me just mention that if you are presently going through a circumstance like that, and if life has you feeling at all that way, um, much of my message actually may not be immediately helpful. And And the reason for that is, it's a bit like being served a healthy meal when you're getting over a sickness, where the meal is healthy and you probably need that nourishment on a certain level, and, and yet you just don't have the appetite for it. Your body is, is using its energy to still fight off sickness, and it can't really devote energy to digesting healthy food. And there's a sense in which sometimes when you're in the middle of some kind of grief and hardship, the, the emotion of that just can't be touched by rational truth at the moment. You just can't You're just not ready to digest it. It doesn't make it any less true or any less healthy. Uh, But the timing may be such that you just can't digest it. Yet if that's true of you, then you just file this away. You can download it uh, later, mark the date, June 24th, 2018. The sermon will still be online and you could find it later. But again, the subject is when life seems unfair, God is still good. The text is Acts 
12, 1 through 25. And let's look there together now. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Acts 12, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the guard were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around me and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent, this, sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognized in Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, 
whose other name was Mark. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you as always that we are invited into your presence to worship you, Lord, and as part of our worship, as the center of our worship, to listen to what you have to say to us. We believe that the Bible is your word when we read it, and particularly when we read it aloud, that we are hearing your voice spoken. And that even you condescend to use the mouths of people like me, fallible for sure, and flawed in many ways, and yet you use the preaching of your word to speak to your people. We come to it with that expectation, and we ask that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I need to set this message up a little bit differently because an astute reader uh, might notice, in spite of the title of the sermon, there doesn't appear to be anything here in the text about unfairness. I don't know if you notice, Luke doesn't represent anything as being unfair. None of the people that he's writing about um, express or suggest that things are unfair. But we bring these notions to the text when we read it. And certainly we bring these notions to life situations when we experience hardships and adversities. And as we expect biblical truth to be applied to the life that we live, we're bringing notions of fairness and unfairness to us. In a sermon a few weeks ago, I read a quote from John Piper that said, arrogance toward God is all, we, all there is in the modern world, if you remember that. He said, it's the ocean we swim in. We can't see it because we look through it to see everything else. And then he went on to quote C.S. Lewis, who said that the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. In the modern world, the roles are reversed. He is the judge and God is in the dock. God is the defendant, man is the judge, and we have some questions for him. And God has some explaining to do to us, we think, as modern men. Well, in a very similar way, we bring modern concepts of fairness and equity and equality to our relationship with God and what we expect from him and from life. You may recognize that the words equity and equality and so forth are almost a bit overused in the modern day. But we, you know, we think, we think, so if things are good for you, they should be equally good for me. If things are bad for me, things should be equally bad for you. If things are bad for you, well, that's your problem, isn't it? You must not be living right. You need to get right with the Lord. We actually do bring the, these kind of notions to all kinds of life situations and human relationships and even our expectations about God. And based on our tendency to see life through those lenses, 
I want to point out quickly where we might see unfairness either in the text or in situations we experience like they are in the text. And it's namely this, number one, that James gets killed while Peter gets rescued. I don't know if this struck you at all as you're reading. This is James, the brother of John. James, one of the inner circle, one of, one of the inner circle of three closest to Jesus, right? Peter, James, and John. This is James. He's one of the main characters in the story, right? One of the good guys. And verse two just says, He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. That's it. There's no eulogy. There's no lead up to it. There's no explanation or anything. Just a passing remark. This apostle is just killed and on goes the story. The first apostle martyred as a matter of fact. Ten years or so after the crucifixion of Jesus, by the way, and for whatever reasons of what had unfolded in that time, we don't ever hear that they replace him as an apostle where they did uh, replace Judas in the beginning. But he's just snuffed out. And yet, Peter is rescued in the most remarkable way. Herod then, number two, Herod gets judged justly. He's a violent, wicked man. He is self-righteous and narcissistic or whatever, loving the praises of people. And he's judged for that justly. But one might think that the soldiers who get executed by Herod got executed for something maybe they really didn't do. Like an angel came in and set Peter free. What are they supposed to do against that, right? Of course, they're not innocent. There is no unfairness here in either of those situations. But if you're a family member of a James, for instance, in the 21st century, it might be a little bit different story. If you're a family member of somebody who devotes their life to the service of the Lord, and then they are wrongly accused, violently handled, brutally murdered, uh, that might seem very unjust. In fact, um, I was just at General Assembly of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church this past week out in Memphis, and one of the people we heard from was the daughter of Andrew Brunson. For those of you who are part of our church and have been around, you'd know of him. We've prayed for him some. If you don't know, uh, he is an evangelical Presbyterian pastor in Turkey, in Izmir, Turkey, the ancient biblical city of Smyrna. He's actually from North Carolina, part of our presbytery, and he was arrested originally without charges held for a year. And then when charges were brought, they were just absolutely trumped up. And his initial trial even included a secret trial by an anonymous witness. It is the kind of stuff you can't imagine still happens in the world. And yet he is still in prison. And his daughter addressed General Assembly, thanking us for our prayers. We prayed for her and for the family. But she said, you know, there was a time in that process earlier on where they wondered, God, why haven't you done something yet? This is real stuff. And if you've got, you've got somebody who's laid down their life and sacrificed for the Lord, you might be left wondering, God, why not 
set him free like you did Peter. But as I said, there's actually nothing unfair there. In fact, all we see in the text is the goodness of God. That's the emphasis. And so I want to consider quickly from this text four ways that God shows his goodness even when life seems unfair. Number one, God shows his goodness in and through death. And this is only implicit, as I said, verse 2 just mentioned, so matter-of-factly that, that Herod killed James by the sword and on moves the story. But James, receiving forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, having the righteousness of Jesus credited to him as righteousness, he enters the presence of the Lord and spends eternity in paradise that day. His imprisonment is cut short. Any future torture, abuse, violence toward him is cut off. And he immediately receives a heavenly reward. You know, but sometimes when it's our loved one who dies, that fact offers less comfort than perhaps it ought to. Is that true for you? I once heard a pastor say, if heaven is so great, why is it nobody wants to go there? Well, and there's something, you know, even Paul says he's torn between whether he ought to stay here or go be with the Lord, and there's something right about that. But for Americans, life on earth is pretty good. And we might be inclined to think, you know, I want to go to heaven, but I want to check the items off of my bucket list first. As if there's something on your bucket list that would compare. Right? You can imagine God sending an angel and saying, it's time to go be with the Lord. And you say, oh, okay, oh, you know, I've got a cruise scheduled in November. <laughs> this, this Caribbean thing, can we reschedule? I mean, the absurdity that there's, that there's anything on earth that could come close to comparing. But sometimes when we, when we have a person who dies and we say, well, you know, he's in a better place. We, it's true, but we say it almost with a little bit of resignation. Like heaven is a really good consolation prize. But it is an indescribably good reward for the believer who dies in Christ that they immediately receive uh, something indescribably good. God shows his goodness then in that. But but God's goodness is seen not only after death, but even in the process of death and dying, which is a paradigm buster for many of us. But here's what theologian Louis Burkhoff says about that. The very thought of death, bereavements through death, the feeling that sickness and sufferings are harbingers of death, and the consciousness of the approach of death all have a beneficial effect on the people of God. They serve to humble the proud, to mortify carnality, to check worldliness, and to foster spiritual mindedness. That is, in other words, from the time of our conversion where we are justified, we are counted as righteousness in the sight of God, then the rest of our life is He is working the process of sanctification, making us 
more and more into the nature of God, more and more like Jesus. And what Burkhoff says is even the death itself and the process of dying actually shapes us more into the likeness of Jesus whose presence we are about to enter. God is good even in and through death. Number two, God shows his goodness through extraordinary intervention. And verses 16 through 19 describe this miraculous rescue of Peter where he is under the watch of four squads of soldiers, we're told in verse 4. A squad was made up of four soldiers, and there are four squads of them. The purpose being that over the night watch, over a 12-hour period from like 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., you would have each squad on watch for a three-hour period of time. And they would trade off, uh, much like in the military, watch happens now for a period of hours, so that each squad would remain alert throughout the night. That's why you have four squads assigned there. Peter was asleep, chained to two guards, while the other two were standing watch by the door. And an angel woke up, the chains fell off, the angel says, Peter, get up, get dressed, follow me. And they walk out of the prison, of course, totally undetected, and uh, ultimately, Peter goes out of the city and into hiding, essentially, to an undisclosed location. But God rescued Peter in a most miraculous way. And, you know, plenty of modern skeptics simply cannot accept that something like this really happened. It's just unbelievable, and they, they would react to this like it's just some believer passing on a legend some years later. But you remember, Luke actually takes care to give us history, not legend, not myth. And um, actually, uh, what he does say here about Herod and uh, what he hints at about these soldiers even is corroborated by other historical sources outside of the Bible um, from the ancient world. He's given us history. This actually happened, and such things still happen. That is, God still intervenes miraculously even in the lives of people. One of the other speakers we heard from at the General Assembly was an African woman named Immaculate Ilibagiza. Are there any Ilibagizas among us today? Any Pender County Ilibagizas? Immaculate Ilibagiza, she was a survivor of the Rwandan genocide in the early 1990s. You may remember some of that story where one tribe set out to exterminate another and in the period of about three months, nearly one million people were killed. Bodies were everywhere in the streets and they were hunting them down, going into houses looking in every room in the closets, under the bed, opening suitcases, going in the ceiling and on the roof, searching every nook and cranny to find every single person to put them to death. Immaculate was hidden in the bathroom of a neighbor's house along with several other women. They knew ultimately that they would come for them, and one day about 200 men showed up. They surrounded the house so that if anybody did scurry out the back door, there was no getting out. Surrounded the house, sent some men in to search. She prayed, God, if you are real, make them not even see the bathroom door. 
And they searched the whole house just like they did every other and never opened the door of that bathroom. And she was uh, among the few in that house saved while again nearly a million other people were killed. Her life was changed by that fact. But God intervenes in the lives of real people in, in miraculous ways and his goodness is demonstrated in doing so. Number three, God shows his goodness here and, else, and, and elsewhere by judging evil. That is, he, he shows his goodness in demonstrating justice. Verses 20 through 23 say that Herod came out before the people of Tyre and Sidon arrayed in a royal robe, delivered a speech. They praised him as a god and Herod received their worship. And of course, verse 23 says that he died a pretty gruesome death. It's obviously told this way. We're supposed to get the point that he received his just judgment for receiving praise as a God. You know, unbelievers often insist that if God is good and powerful, he should do something about evil. And there's a lot we could say about uh, that whole subject and that whole problem. But part of the point here is that people recognize by their conscience that they, there is such thing as right and wrong. In other words, that even the unbeliever re- recognize there is such thing as evil and God ought to do something about it if he is good. Of course, sometimes when he actually does, they don't particularly like the way that he uh, demonstrates his holiness or justice against evil. He doesn't like the fact that their rebellion against him and mockery of him, by the way, is evil and that they will receive their just judgment if they remain in that sin. Uh, They don't particularly like that, but they do recognize that there is such thing as good and evil. We love justice. People, human beings, love justice. And we're supposed to love justice. You know, we love the scene in the movie where the bad guy finally gets what's coming to him. Don't we? You ever been in a theater where that happens, that moment comes at the end of the movie, and people actually cheer in the movie theater for the good guy, like he can hear him or whatever? You know, it's like there's just something that just erupts. We love justice. And it's a good thing when God judges evil. Now, we're not supposed to long for uh, evil to befall anybody. We don't wish that on other people. In fact, we, we pray and hope for their repentance and acceptance by God. But make no mistake, justice is a good thing, and it's part of what demonstrates the goodness of God as he shows here. And then fourth, and finally, God shows his goodness through his providence. Look in verses 24 and 25, the way this chapter ends. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. If you were here with us uh, last week, you recall that Barnabas and Saul had left Antioch to go take a collection, an offering to the church in Jerusalem. And now... Uh, they returned from Jerusalem back to Antioch. 
So the word of God continues to increase and multiply, and he, place, he, he puts into place his workers for their upcoming mission. The whole book of Acts is getting ready to shift from Jerusalem and Peter to Paul and the uttermost parts of the world. The 13 through 28 of Acts will focus on the ministry of Paul. And he's setting it up right here through circumstances that look chaotic to people who are experiencing them. But God, by his providence, directed, regulated, and governed all of these event, events to bring about his purposes. He has a plan, and it's a good plan. And so it is that when we experience loss and brokenness and disappointment and devastation, God is still governing over all of it to fulfill his plan. And not just his plan for you and me, but his plan for the earth, for the plan for mankind. It's a, it's a greater and larger plan but it's good as he shows his lordship sustaining um, all of life. Well, sometimes life does go vastly different than how it seems it ought to go, doesn't it? Just like the woman I shared about at the outset whose husband shortly after she married him was diagnosed at a young age with cancer. Just like the fate of Andrew Brunson or Immaculate Iligabiza in uh, Rwanda. Sometimes things go vastly different and you know God could have done something to change it if he had chosen to. And while that, is, that does not make it an occasion to shout at God about it. Let me, let me just say this. This is a bit of an aside uh, but it, it, it sometimes is the case that people's frustration with how things go out and even directing that toward God, the sense of unfairness of whatever, arises out of the fact that they have created God in their own image. They've, they've imagined a God who's basically a really good version of us and set him up and worship him, and then when he doesn't deliver the way we imagine he ought to, then they're frustrated by that. And see, at best, that may be erroneous and frustrating. At worst, it may be downright idolatrous to have created a false God and worshiped him. Beware, brothers and sisters, that you don't do that. And so it's, it's not an occasion when that happens to shout at God in frustration, but it's certainly a time to cry out to him. Because even, even when life just seems unfair, God can still be trusted. God can still be a source of comfort to you because God is still good and he cannot be otherwise. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I'll invite some elders to come forward to be available for prayer at the conclusion of the service. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word, for the reminder in it, Lord, that you are good, that you are Lord, that you are exercising your lordship all the time. That you 
hold things together, as Colossians says, that you uphold the universe by the word of your power. And every circumstance that we face that would be discouraging and despairing and frustrating to us, Lord, that you are in charge of and you are a good God who can be trusted with everything we have and everything we are, even when life doesn't make sense. Lord, I pray for those individuals today who may, who may need to know that, that even, even if they're not ready to digest much of what I've shared, Lord, God, would you just convey that in spite of that and in spite of their circumstances and hardships, that you are good and that they can find rest in you. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are our God. We are your people because you've made us so. And just ask that you would continue to work in us what you want to work out, even as we reach out to our community through avenues like Power Camp. Lord, would you, would you work in us what you want us to work out and impart something of the love of Jesus to others as we do. And we ask in his name, amen.